through 29. This is the word of the Lord. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others do not teach yourself. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his circumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but is from God. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. How do you know what matters to a person? How do you know what matters to a person? The easiest way you can tell what matters to someone is to go and see what are the things they cherish. What are the things do they put first and foremost in their life? What are the things they give priority to have you ever known someone who needs certain things to be just a certain way and if you don't do it that way tends they tend to freak out my wife will tell you that if we're ever doing legos together the lego people go where they say are and they are in the picture you don't put them other places or in other positions if you put them in the wrong place then it's not a good thing and I get very irritated and my wife thinks of that and she goes I know it's important to you it's your Legos where your Legos are there your heart will be also or something like that it seems small but for them it's a very big deal we can be funny about the things that matter to us Paul has been addressing the Jews he's been talking to them about the thing that mattered most to them the law. Here he finally, specifically, names them as the Jews. And he's shown them through chapter 2 and at the end of chapter 1. All will be judged by God. The basis of judgment is the same for everyone, be you Jew or be you Gentile. And Paul accuses them of claiming special status. Because they are the people of God, the covenant people of God, they are apart from everyone else. In our text today, he continues this argument saying that your status is not going to save you. And he continues talking about the law and specifically he'll talk about circumcision. 
He's not trying to convince them that they commit sins. They know they commit sins, but he shows them that they're liable for their sins. That, that, that to live the law and to be saved, they must again live perfectly. And so in him showing them, reflecting for them what's important to them, we'll see three things. We're going to see the boasting in the law. We're going to see the teaching of the law. And third, we're going to see the circumcision and the law. Let's begin by looking at boasting in the law. Paul begins here by stating that the Jews have claimed several privileges, excuse me, for themselves. He says, we, you say that you belong to the chosen people of Israel, that you have the law and you are relying on that law, that you have a special relationship with God. Here, as we've stated, is the first time that Paul has actually specifically said he's talking about the Jewish people. And it's interesting here because this is a word we're well familiar with, uh, a Jewish person, or that's a Jew. Uh, and yet, do we actually know where that word comes from? Specifically, the word Jew comes from those who were of Judah, the son of Judah, one of the 12 tribes, the son of Judah, I should say, one of the 12 tribes. Uh, Judah was specifically in that area uh, around Jerusalem. In fact, when the kingdom split, the southern kingdom was called Judah. It was no longer Israel. The northern kingdom was Israel. Those were, were Jews. And post-exile, the, the territory of Israel was actually not much more bigger than the original Judah. And so after exile, any of those who were Israel were, began to be called uh, Jews. So this is where we get this term. It began, began to refer to a religious and national status. Those who belong to the covenant people of God. As the Jewish people then, as those who are from Judah, from Israel, Paul begins to get at the heart of their problem. Their problem is that they rely on the law. They boasted in God. Now, this in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's a good thing if we rightly boast in God. But they were not doing it rightly. They were boasting in their own human and arrogance. They know his will. They have his law for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. That's what he's been telling them. You call yourself a Jew, verse 17, and rely on the law and boast in God, verse 18, and know his will and approve what is excellent. He says, you have the very will of God for you, laid out before you. You know what it is that you're supposed to do. You're instructed by it. And it mattered. It was a great importance to them. I love their law. But they've missed the point of it. The law was this beautiful thing that was to guide them in their relationship with God. But this relationship was always contingent. It was always based upon the faithfulness of God. The law, in fact, for them, revealed their inability to maintain that relationship. And so this is why the law necessitated the whole sacrificial system. 
You have to come to the temple over and over again because you continue to sin and your sins need to be atoned for. And yet they boasted in this. They exhibited the arrogance and insufficiency of their understanding. Now before we move on, I would remind you once again, in our context today, you are the Jew. You are those who have the law. You are those who have the word of God set before you. You have the very will of God set before you. People often say, well, how do I know the will of God for my life? And a simple answer to that is, here, know the will of God for your life. Read his word. You have Jesus as your savior. Now, the question is this. You have that will. You have that law. How will you act? How will you act having the will of God for you set before you? We as Presbyterians have been given. Now, I know not all of you are longtime Presbyterians, but I have been a Presbyterian since I was baptized at a young age. We have been given the uh, moniker or the name, the Frozen Chosen. It's not something we wear proudly. I don't wear it proudly. And what are they saying when they say that? Well, you love doctrine. You love theology. You love the law in essence. But that's it. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing to protect theology. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing to love doctrine. It's not a bad thing. But if it doesn't go any further than that, there's a problem. We cannot be cold and hard in our faith. We cannot love doctrine more than we love people. We can't hold it up and say, hey, I've got it figured out. What's your problem? We have to be those who understand our condition, that our doctrine is nothing apart from Jesus Christ. Without Jesus Christ, our doctrine is empty and meaningless. He has done all for us. And so we are to respond in faith and in praise. And we must go forth and tell others, we have the will of God for you and you need it. This is words that will give you life. In fact, that was what the Jew was supposed to be doing as well. Which is our second point, the teaching of the law. This is what they're supposed to be doing. Verse 19. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment and knowledge of truth, you then teach to others. Let's stop there for a second. He says... You have a responsibility, you, you Jewish community. Go guide the blind. Go be a light in darkness. Instruct the foolish. Teach children. Because of their possession of the law, because of their status as God's chosen, they had a responsibility. Go give those who do not have the law, who do not have God's will, go to them and instruct them. Give to them these things. But he goes on to say what in 20 or 21. 
you then teach others, do you not teach yourself? Again, he calls them on their hypocrisy. You have the law. You boast in the fact that you're telling others, which they really weren't. And then he says, you're not even teaching yourself. He goes even further and accuses them in their hypocrisy. He says, you preach against stealing, but you steal. You preach against adultery, but you commit adultery. He says, you, com- you preach against not robbing the temple, and yet you rob the temple. And this is just a sampling, isn't it? He could have gone on and on and on. You say you don't do these things, or you tell others not to do these things, but then you do them. We could fill that into our modern-day context fairly well, couldn't we? You're saying one thing and you're doing another. They fall short of their responsibilities. And all the while, they boast in it. Look who we are as the people of God, the covenant people of God. They boasted in it. Now, the first two here are fairly straightforward. Uh, Stealing and adultery, we understand those. But what is Paul talking about here when he says, you rob from the temple? It it, it sounds in a way that he's talking about idolatry. But really in Israel and Jewish culture at this time, idolatry was not really an issue in a sense of, hey, let's make a carved idol. They were far too pharisaical for that. The idols have been removed at this point, as it were. So what does this mean? Well, perhaps here they were robbing from the temple and that they weren't giving what they were supposed to give to the temple. And that was true. Jesus comes and says, you find all these ways of, oh, I I can't give the money to this temple because I've done this and I've done that. And they're finding ways to cheat the temple. Maybe uh, another thing that they might be doing is elevating the law as an idol in and of itself. So they rob from the temple and that they make the law an idol. No matter what the point is, the point is that they are inadequate. They have committed these sins. They have been false. They have boasted in the law, yet they have broken the law. And Paul tells them that there is a reversal that is coming. There is a reversal that is coming. Where they will be judged. They will be judged by the world. Isn't this the very thing Jesus said to them? But even worse than this, if I can say that, they have caused Gentiles to blaspheme. The name of God. He's quoting Isaiah 52.5 here. He shows them the weight of what they're doing. He shows them that their actions are heinous. That they actually cause the nations to blaspheme the name of God. So I have a question for you. Do our actions cause the nations... To blaspheme the name of God. I think we naturally want to say no to answer no to that question. 
But have we ever done what Israel has done here? Have we misrepresented the word of God? Have we held others to a higher standard than we hold ourselves? Have we failed to love others and yet called them to love? Have we said, hey, you need to take care of the poor and the widowed and the orphan, and yet we fail to do the very thing? Have we allowed our faith and our doctrine to rule out loving one another and loving others? Have we used the word of God as a manipulative tool to seek gain, to twist and distort it? I think there's a temptation to do this. And I think that there's, that this has been done on greater and lesser scales. I think that on a, the greatest scale, we have those out there who are literally saying, God wants you to send me a thousand dollars and he's going to bless you. And the nations mock. But have you ever said something like this? Have you ever used the will of God as a manipulative tool to not make a decision? Well, I'm just seeking the will of God. That's just, I just don't know that that's the will of God for me. And we mistakenly, I believe, think we can understand the secret will of God. And we use it as a tool of manipulation when in reality we have his revealed will and we're will, excuse me, and we're called to make decisions as his people based on it. And we can be moved to inaction. We can use the, the word of God as an excuse. Well, I just I just don't think I need to go do that. I just don't think that's God's will for me. And we begin to say, well, I, I can't go do that service project because I just don't think that's God's will for me. And I go, no, God says go and do. It is God's will for you. And we, the world looks at us, they see the way we twist and distort and they mock and they laugh at our inconsistency and our hypocrisy. <laughs> And this was the state of Israel. And Paul goes on and he heaps up more upon them. Note there is an answer to all this, but he does not give it to them yet. He goes on and say, hey, you've got your circumcision, don't you? I noticed that you never put one up. <laughs> if, you ever, if you know, um, Jeff often puts up a thing inviting people to come to the service. And he has a nice graphic and he goes, Seriously? You titled your sermon Circumcisional Law. What graphic am I supposed to put with that? But they boasted in their circumcision. It was another sign of their privilege. It was the thing that marked them out as the covenant people of God. They were participants in the covenant of Abraham. And Paul begins to take this away too. Isn't it enough that he's been... Knocking him down, knocking him down. Now he's going to take away this as well. He says, hey, circumcision's all right. 
if you obey the law. What's the condition? Circumcision is of ultimate value. It'll keep you from judgment if you obey the law. In essence, he says, if and only if you're perfect. But if you're not perfect, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. What's he saying? It's of no effect. It was a waste. It did you no good. Simply because you had a physical thing done to you doesn't mean that it has helped you at all. But Paul goes on to add insult to injury. Hey, but if the man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? In essence, he's saying, yes, he didn't have this physical action take place on him, but if he obeys the law, hey, he's in a better spot than you are. Of course, we know no one can do that completely. Once again, Paul is showing them that there's, no equal, there's an equal standard with God. We are all judged upon the same basis. The Jews have said the law is doable. We can't be perfect, but we can get close. And Paul rejects this. He removes circumcision as a badge of honor. It will not excuse them from God's wrath. They will forfeit any help at the time of judgment. Circumcision does not matter. He goes on to say, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Paul's giving a glimpse of something that will work, but he gives it in the negative first. He's saying, it's a true Jew, a true Jewish person is not one outwardly. A true Jewish person is not merely someone who has been circumcised. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. He's beginning to turn definitions on its head. At this point, Paul is no longer talking about nation of Israel. He's no longer talking about a people who are identified by their religious and cultural distinctions. It is not a mere facade. He's saying there are those who are truly Jews who are not outwardly Jewish people. We as Gentiles are being brought in here. We come into a new understanding of the covenant. We understand that a new stage of redemption history has come. Paul is flipping it on them. The Jews have believed they would stand in judgment upon the world. But verse 27 says, Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written code and circumcision but break the law. This is the same thing that Jesus says in Matthew twenty or 12. The men from Nineveh will rise up in judgment with a generation and condemn it. 
For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at judgment with the generation and condemn it. For she came from the end of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. These are two groups of people that the Jews hated. Assyrians and Egyptians. And Jesus says what? They're going to rise up and judge you. They're going to judge you for what you've done. They haven't kept the letter of the law. But they trusted in God. Unlike you who have sought to fill it as a ritual act, as a superficial, incomplete thing, whose disobedience now is condemning them. And their true works will be revealed. They will reveal their hearts, who they truly are. Paul shows them that the circumcision outwardly is not what's important. It's a circumcision of the heart, an inward circumcision. This is what is taught throughout the New Testament. Paul will later say in Romans, not all Israel is Israel. Not all of the outward people of God are actually the inward people of God. This is still true today. Not all who are the church are the church. Not all who come and sit in pews and sit in chairs are actually the true church. But he's pointing to something greater here. To those who are Christians who are truly in Christ, not a specific group of people, but those who belong to the people of God. The true Jew, the true true Israel will be held up not by people, but by God. God will honor them in the last day. What it all comes down to is that Paul's saying here, look, it's the heart that matters. Be you Jew or be you Gentile, be you churchgoer or non-churchgoer. It's the heart that matters. Where our treasure is. There our heart will be also. What are we showing affection for? In money? In possessions? In power? In position? What do we make the most time for? We are called... To not be circumcised outwardly. Let me put this in modern terms. We are called not to be just church members outwardly. So you've come, you've joined a church, you've been baptized, you've received the Lord's Supper, you go through the motions. We are called to more than this. We are called to be inwardly conformed, to allow our hearts to be conformed to God and to let the love that he has for us and what he has done for us flow forth from us in all that we do. There will always be those who boast in the law, who take pleasure in the doing of the law and not in the one who gave the law. But we, brothers and sisters, we are to focus 
focus our hearts on God. We must remember that we are the keepers of truth. We have been given the law of God. We have been given his will. And it is not our job to beat people to death with it. Maybe some of you, my Bible probably wouldn't do a very good job. Some of you have the big honking hardback Bibles though, right? The, the, the study Bibles that are that thick. If you get a good spin on it, we're not to beat people to death with the word of God. And we have a tendency to do this. We are to show them love. The, the world is going to be the world. And the church needs to be the church. Our position is not what is important. Whether we be elders or deacons or Sunday school teachers or music leaders, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you've been baptized just to be baptized. It's important. Yes, baptism is important. The Lord's Supper is important. Being a church member, I believe, is important. But it's not just the doing. It's not just the doing. It's the heart that matters. What is your heart focused on? It's New Year's, right? So now we're all going to make our New Year's resolutions. and We're going to lose 50 pounds. We're going to go run marathons. And everybody's going to have their things. and give up chocolate cake or smoking or alcohol, whatever it is. Everybody's going to have their resolutions, right? It's the time of year we... We do new things. And you see our psalms this morning, intentionally, well, one fell, the, the psalm for today, but I picked another call to worship. Sing to the Lord a new song. All things are new, right? What we need is not behavioral modification. What we need is heart change. In this new year, Yes, certainly. But all our life, would we resolve to have a heart that is focused on God in all that we do? Would we stop putting ourselves forward as those who are special in and of ourselves because of our status? Would we focus on God and would the love that he has shown to us spring forth from us to the world around us. And then guess what he says will happen? As we do this, as we are those who are not Jews outwardly, but inwardly, not those who are circumcised outwardly, but in the heart by the spirit not by the letter, for you. His praise is not from man, but for God, from God. Would we cease to seek the praise of men? And would we in all that we do seek the praise of God? Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for this word. Lord, would we take it to heart and would our hearts reflect you in all that we do, in all that we say, in all our actions, our thoughts,
Would we not hold ourselves up higher than we ought, but would we hold you up? We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.